Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24 with highlights from our studios here in Midori House and from around the world. This week we speak with the author of a new book about the 100 years of the BBC. People, they think of broadcasting as something machine-tooled and formulaic. It seemed to me that there's a story there about the people who make the programmes and they're real human beings. They're imperfect, they're fallible and their very human sense of what they've been trying to do over the last hundred years seemed to me a really important story to tell. Plus, we visit a new Francis Bacon exhibition in London and hear a recipe from a Brazilian chef. Muqueca is a fish stew from Bahia. So this region in Brazil has very Afro influences. They use uh, lots of fish, coconut milk and spices. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Well, we start the show with an interview I've done with David Handy, author of The BBC, A People's History, which is celebrating a hundred years of the iconic broadcaster. Here is David with more. Many, many years ago I worked for the BBC, so I'm both an insider and an outsider. I've worked there and I've also studied it as an academic for over 20 years. So I've thought about the BBC a lot and with the centenary on the horizon a few years ago, I thought, well, surely this is this is what needs to be done, a history of the BBC. Now, there have been histories before. Asa Briggs has, has written five huge volumes, 4,000 pages, but it's very expensive and it's very big. And I thought there was some value in making a reasonably accessible, researched but accessible one-volume history of the BBC. And it's slightly different to other histories, I think. And that subtitle is important, A People's History. And I think it's important for me in two ways. One, partly because of the political atmosphere at the moment, I thought it was really, really important to make the case that as a public service broadcaster, the BBC is ours. It's not the government's. It's not a state broadcaster. It's a, it's a national broadcaster, so it's got a relationship with the state, but the government seem to have got it in their head that it's theirs to do with what they please. And I thought this is a really important kind of manifesto point in a way to say, actually, no, this is ours. It's a public broadcaster. The other reason that it's a, a people's history is because I was given this unique opportunity about eight years ago, where the BBC approached me and said, look, we've got an archive of 600 or so interviews with former members of staff. It's the BBC's own oral history collection. And it's not yet publicly available. And we want to get it out there, accessible by the public. And it gave me a chance while working on this project to digitise and make available these interviews, a sneak preview. And that sneak preview allowed a much more personal, human aspect of the BBC's history to be told. And I think that's really important because people, I think, sometimes think of broadcasting and especially an, an institution like the BBC, which seems so very formal and dignified. They think of broadcasting as something machine-tooled and formulaic. It seemed to me that there's a story there about the people who make the programmes and they're real human beings. They're, they're imperfect, they're fallible, they bring to the task their own passions and their own weaknesses and their very human sense of what they've been trying to do over the last hundred years seemed to me a really important story to tell. 
And it's interesting, right, David, that the BBC here in the United Kingdom, and I speak this as, as a foreigner, it has such an emotional connection with people that is very rare to see, even in other public broadcasters around the world. It is a little bit like the NHS, right? And, and I think that's why I think it's very suitable, the name of people's history in a way. I think it's this is something which is sometimes not fully appreciated by people who don't who don't live in britain and it's great to know that there are people around the world who see it in this way it is not a marginal force or institution we could say for instance that public radio in america in the united states is fairly marginal it's a kind of belt and braces arrangement to provide that which the commercial sector doesn't provide well the bbc is is different. It's been a national broadcaster for so long. And most of us use it. The vast majority of us use it in different ways. Even those who are critical of it use it. It's used by well over 90% of us at some stage each week. And that's partly because actually it's sort of everywhere. It's, it's, it does radio and it does lots of radio services. It does national radio, local radio, television, regional television, television in Scotland and Wales and so on. It's the world service, lots of different languages and so on. And of course, this has been one of the criticisms of the BBC. It's like a sprawling, expanding empire. But actually, the ethos of the BBC right from the beginning was to bring the best that has been thought and said to as many people as possible. And that is the abiding ethos of the BBC. It was influenced by people right from the beginning who had in their minds the kind of the words and the ideas of that great Victorian writer, Matthew Arnold. And he talked about how culture and civilization needed to be spread, uh, sweetness and light, he called them, needed to be spread to everyone. It wasn't just about some people having access to the great things in life. It was that everyone had access to it. And that actually is why the licence fee, for instance, isn't just some strange funding mechanism. For John Reith, who founded the BBC, it was, it was profoundly shaped by the idea that people with more money shouldn't get a better service. So there was a profoundly democratic notion behind this idea of everything for everyone. You mentioned there that the BBC is, is almost, you know, it's like a service to people in a way. And it's been proven historically and it's mentioned in your book. I think a very important part of history in the Second World War. I think it was unique what they did as well, right? So how, how important was actually that period? I know there's quite a few pages dedicated to that. As well. Yes, about 100 pages. Uh, and, a <laughs> <laughs> which is a, it's a lot. But my word, the, the Second World War, I mean, I know it's a, it's a danger for us in Britain, right? We become obsessed with the Second World War. But actually for the BBC, BBC, it really was a profound mm. moment in its history. So it's already in 1939 a kind of national institution. It's a respectable institution. It's There it is in Broadcasting House in the centre of London and, and so on. It's not yet really got a huge international presence. So it, it had launched the Empire Service in 1932 and in 1938 it had just started doing some language services, the Arabic service, the Latin American service and so on. But it was in the Second World War where... Apart from anything else, we'll come, you know, it broadcast on the home front as well, and that was really important, but, but it also broadcast internationally, particularly to occupied Europe. It was broadcasting in multiple languages to listeners who were in peril if they were caught listening to the BBC, and it had a commitment to telling the 
truth as far as it could in the circumstances available. Now, it was limited by the amount of information they had from government. There was some information that had to be held back. It wasn't untruthful, but it wasn't the whole truth. But what the BBC managed to do was to kind of support the morale and inform listeners throughout Europe. And that forged an affection, a bond with the BBC. It raised the BBC in people's minds as an important purveyor of truth, an organisation that had been on their side in some way. Now, on the home front, of course, it was the national broadcaster and right at the beginning of the war, theatres closed down and, and so on. And actually, it was a main source of information, but also entertainment and and escapism. And this is one of the things that I think changed at the BBC in the course of the war, is that it was really, really important to keep people listening, right? If the BBC was this service to sustain morale, people needed to listen. In order for people to listen, the BBC really had to work harder than it had ever done before to speak in a way that the people wanted it to speak, to be more accessible, to understand in a way that perhaps it hadn't fully in the 1920s and 1930s the conditions of working class life and to understand and to be sympathetic to what people were going through. And I think one aspect of that, which I think is a story that hasn't really fully been told until now, is the extent to which the BBC was itself a target of the Luftwaffe during the Second World War. The people at the BBC put their bodies on the line in order to keep broadcasting. Wow, that's that's impressive. I mean, that's another book coming in from yeah. you. <laughs> uh, David, do you think, you know, some people today, including perhaps the government, do you think, are they taking the BBC for granted in a way? Because, as you say, it does have a very precious role here uh, in the UK. I, I can't imagine the UK without the BBC in a way. But I feel people are just, you know, taking for granted to say, you know, I know that there might be some changes, but... I don't think an abrupt change might be the solution for all these problems, right? Well, I mean, I mean, clearly, I think if anyone reads my book, they'll know that mm. I'm, you know, sympathetic, not uncritical, but sympathetic. Mm. I do believe the BBC is in a in critical danger at the moment, and I think that is partly to do with the particular politics of the moment. I mean, we do have a government that seems to be ideologically kind of uninterested in the BBC. In fact, I'd go further than that. There's something about the BBC that they just can't get to grips with. It, they associate it, I suppose, historically with some sort of sense of a nationalised industry, something collective, something publicly funded. The current government, I think, is quite capable of throwing away the BBC and not appreciating what they've thrown away until it's too late. Now, we know that they've frozen the licence fee. We know that since 2010, the BBC has already had its income reduced in real terms by 30%. That's going to carry on. We're going to lose more and more quality programmes. Now, I think one of the things that we have to get our heads around is that actually that's kind of what the government want. They want the programmes to become poorer. They want people to fall out of love with the BBC. Because at the moment, the thing that is saving the BBC, and it's always saved it, is actually still most of us actually use it and quite like it. And some of us are very passionate about it. And that public support is, is actually going to be really, really vital. Because on the political front, we have a government that I think does not care for this extraordinary national institution. That was David Handy there, author of the BBC, A People's History, which is out now.
And to continue with the great coverage that we had this week from Kiev, our very own Chris Chermak spoke with Ukrainian philosopher Volodymyr Yermolenko on what living under constant threat can do to human psyche. We don't know what is real. Is our peaceful lives here, you know, in the cafes, in Kyiv streets? Kyiv has been developing very nice, you know, this cafe culture over the past years, this kind of uh, enjoying life. Is this real and the war is unreal or the other way around? Maybe in two weeks, one month, two months, all this will disappear. And that means that our normal life willing to, you know, as normal people to enjoy life, to meet with friends, to, you know, meet with, uh, you know, spouses uh, and enjoy life. Maybe this is, this was an illusion. If we enter the war and the life will completely change. And nobody really understands those people who didn't, didn't see the war. Nobody really understands what does it mean to, to live in the war. What do you think that does to to a person's mind, I suppose, in a way, this this living with this constant dual reality and threat, I suppose, sort of hanging over one's one's life? Well, it's difficult because there is huge uncertainty. So Ukrainians are living for decades in a kind of uncertainty, uh, which is the life is much more uncertain than uh, for like people in, in Europe, in, in America, etc. We don't really plan for one year, two years, etc. It is very difficult to plan. But this uncertainty, well, every person is primarily thinking about the future. And it is either hoping for some future or it is fearing some future. And uh, when the future collapses, you don't know really what to do. So our parents, the, the generation of our parents, uh, lived through a moment when the future collapsed the collapse of the Soviet Union, they had their careers, they had their jobs, and suddenly, in a matter of, you know, weeks or months, years, they needed to invent something absolutely new, and nobody understood how to invent this new life. So I think this is this is the major feeling. It does sound like the, the irony, almost, of what has been happening recently, the, the sort of the aggression from Russia, that it has actually, in that sense, also strengthened Ukraine's identity, if you will, rather than weakened it? Of course. But I think that Russians are solving their problem. And their problem is kind of to consolidate themselves. Therefore, they create this image of a big enemy, NATO, America, etc. Look at, again, the state of mood of Russian society. They are seriously saying that American NATO are their enemies. And they are being encircled by these enemies. But you should look at, you know, geographical map to understand that it is very difficult to encircle Russia. And historically, we see that any Western powers who were entering Russian territory that failed. So why they are so afraid of the West? Well, I think the strategy of those Russian leaders was just to create a big external enemy to consolidate Russia itself. But they did the same with Ukraine. So if you look, for example, at how NATO membership uh, support is evolving in Ukraine, it was 12 percent in 2012. It's now 53 percent. So the huge growth. It's NATO. For EU membership, it's even much bigger. And if you go to eastern southern Ukraine and talk to Russian speaking Ukrainians, you will 
among many of them, find uh, a, a statement that Russia is the biggest enemy. I mean, part of what you've been saying then is also that Ukraine does have a confidence in itself, uh, I suppose, in this in this time. Just quickly then maybe, how does that compare to, say, 2014? Do you feel that the confidence level has grown since then, since 2014, when all of this started? I think confidence level has grown with regard to army. And we see the, that the army is the institution that uh, is uh, the most trusted. It has 72% of trust, which is huge. And this is good. I'm not sure that people really trust the capacity of the authorities to react, of the president to, to react, because Zelensky came to power not on, a, on an idea that he will be a great military leader. He came to power on an idea that he will end the war very quickly. Now he's forced by the reality to play a different game. Whether people can really rely upon him, I'm not sure. One of the weak issues can be kind of a paralysis of response. If something happens, is there a mechanism very quick, very decisive response? I try to be confident, of course, as a citizen of Ukraine, because panicking is a very bad thing. But of course, we will know after and if it happens. You are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Now, the two Michelin-starred chef of London's Da Terra restaurant shares a recipe for moqueca, a traditional Brazilian fish stew. Hi, my name is uh, Rafael Cagalli. I'm the chef owner of restaurant Da Terra in London, Bethany Green. And so we've been running the Terra now for three years. Uh, we managed to get two Michelin stars so far. So it is a great achievement. Absolutely thrilled for everything what's happening. It's been obviously a roller coaster in terms of having your own business. So what I want to bring for the Terra is that kind of approach of my background as a chef. So you have Italian, a bit of giving my Brazilian twist as well. In fact, one of the dishes that I would like to share is a classic Brazilian dish called muqueca, which is a fish stew. Traditionally, the most icon muqueca, let's say, is from Bahia, which is located in the north part of Brazil. So this region in Brazil is uh, where Brazil was first uh, colonized by the Portuguese, but it has also very Afro influences in there. They use uh, lots of fish, coconut milk and spices. So this is including on this recipe. So this recipe is literally roasting off with some onions, garlic and peppers. So you can use uh, red peppers, green peppers. Then you can make a paste as well, you know, with tomatoes and garlic and you can also sweat it off. There is a particular ingredient, it's called dengue oil. Normally this oil is extracted from the fruit of the palm tree. So it's like a red oil, super traditionally in this region. But if you don't have this oil, which be hard to source it, you can just add like a saffron because traditionally this mukeka is quite yellow, let's say. So you can add uh, like turmeric and all that. So you make it this base, roast it off all the garlic and onions and peppers. Then you add tomatoes. Then you add some fish stock if you have. Then I just like to have a bit of prawns in that as well and adding some coconut milk in that as well. Let it boil it for a few minutes and then you add your fish. More tours in the end. Obviously, you don't want that overcooked. 
and yeah, it's super warm. It's true, let's say you can serve with rice on the side, which is quite traditional as well. Uh, we also have some crumb that it's called farofa uh, in Brazil. It, it normally is a cassava flour that is toasted often in the pan. So we can add in that together as well, nice a bit of texture. So it's super warm up like this to be eating like even on a weekend or Sunday. It's very nice for like big parties, big groups as well. It's quite warm home feeling. Very delicious, and I have to say, listeners, a good mocaca is to die for. And now we head back to Kiev. Yes, indeed, the Ukrainian capital has seen a tremendous flurry of diplomacy this week, with European leaders from the UK, Poland, Netherlands, Turkey, and the European Union itself offering a show of support for Ukraine and hoping to get a sense of the situation on the ground in its capital. Monaco's Paige Reynolds has been speaking with Mati Masikas, a career diplomat from Estonia who has been the European Union's ambassador to Kiev since 2019. She began by asking him about the diplomatic parade and whether all of these visitors were really speaking with one voice. Kiev has been uh, really a center of diplomatic activities lately uh, with all those visits and not only diplomacy. According, according to the Minister of Defense, Reznikov, Currently, 400 international journalists are requesting the access to the conflict zone in Donbass, in eastern Ukraine. If you look at the visits, if you look at the statements of the EU leaders and the EU countries, EU member states leaders, yes, the message is very clear. We are here to support, to reiterate the unwavering support to Ukraine's independence, uh, sovereignty, territorial integrity in, in internationally recognized borders and to show to the aggressor that Ukraine has friends. There's been quite a lot of different reactions in terms of actually providing sort of practical sort of military assistance to Ukraine. We've had sort of some Baltic states like your Estonia, who have, you know, really come out and, and shown a lot of will to support. Then you have other sort of more traditional powers like Germany, who are being a little bit more vague about the support they can offer. How do you how do you manage that? And I guess, do you think that's a little bit damaging to this idea of European unity? A friend in need is a friend indeed, right? And of course, the Ukrainian leadership appreciates very highly all the practical support that can be given. The EU does not have weaponry to deliver uh, to Ukraine. The EU's response has been, first of all, the political support that you have seen in a very united and coherent way with the high-level visits, with the messages, with EU foreign ministers discussing the situation in December, in January, and now, now in the forthcoming meeting in February. And if you want, the crown jewel of the EU's assistance so far has been the last week's announcement of the 1.2 billion euro macrofinancial assistance to help the macrofinancial stability of Ukraine. And, and this is pretty much a crucial point. If you have troops at your borders, that does not exactly boost investor confidence. And it's no secret that the Ukrainian government has found it hard recently to borrow on international markets. And the signal that the EU believes in Ukraine, that the EU is, is there helping Ukraine's macrofinancial stability, has been very, very highly appreciated. Should the worst happen, 
and Russia would uh, step up its aggression against Ukraine. The response will be a united one. And the response will be a EU, an EU-wide decision. All the member states need to agree. If there will be need to, to introduce sanctions against Russia, against the aggressor, it will be a united response. And this is very well understood by Ukrainian authorities. I kind of perhaps want to talk briefly about the aggressor, about about Russia. Um, there's often quite a lot of debate about, obviously, how to deal with Russia. And again, the EU, different member states have different ways of dealing with the Kremlin, with Russia, diplomatically. Do you think that the situation with Ukraine is going to change how certain EU countries deal with Russia? Do you think it's kind of making it, I guess, a little bit more urgent to deal with Russia in, in a kind of slightly harder way? Oh, it has. It has already since 2014. I was in Brussels at that time representing Estonia in the EU and I took part in all the discussions of the EU response and I uh, remember very well how big was the step of freezing the top-level political uh, dialogue. It was a dialogue, it's a sacred word in, uh, in the EU. How big was the decision to introduce economic sanctions against a permanent member of the UN Security Council and the big trading partner for many member states. And not only that, in 2016, the EU's foreign ministers adopted, and later it was it was reconfirmed by the EU leaders, adopted the five guiding principles for the EU's policy towards Russia, meaning our Russia policy, which links the EU's policy towards Russia with Russia's fulfillment of the Minsk agreements that ended the hot phase of the war back in uh, first in, in 2014 and then in February 20, 2015. And even more so, the EU said that it needs to pay more attention to the countries in between, those countries of the Eastern Partnership that lie between the EU and Russia. And that was a huge step as well because of historic economic traditional reasons it had been so much easier to focus only on moscow to focus only on the russia it's understandable russia is, is so big it's so big a partner and a traditional partner and uh, sovereignty of the of the eastern partnership countries is only 30 years old russia has a partner for for centuries and that's something that i coming from estonia and understand very well having in the 1990s also a bit felt this focus only on Russia and not on, not on the countries uh, in between. So the change of policy was a tectonic one. And this is not going to change. You sort of mentioned it when we were talking about Russia, about how you have a, a sort of personal perspective, given the fact that you're from Estonia. Do you think it's useful being here, representing the EU, coming from another European country that, that borders Russia that presumably has had quite similar issues to deal with? First of all, my work is focused on Ukraine. Uh, that's for sure. And I would claim, of course, my knowledge of Russian and my experience with Russia helps. But I'm much more helped by the fact that since early 1990s, 
I have been an Estonian civil servant and I have lived and worked through all the transition. So this experience of uh, transition in Eastern Europe helps me tremendously here in Ukraine. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And now let's talk about Snowflake, which has become arguably the defining insult of our time. A new book seeks, among much else, to reclaim snowflakes as something of a badge of honor. It is We Need Snowflakes in Defense of the Sensitive, the Angry and the Offended by Hannah Jewell. Here is Hannah with more. So you can find the first usages of the word snowflake as an insult from hundreds of years ago, from basically as early as we knew what actual snowflakes were and what snow was comprised of, right? Showing this delicate, fragile, unique little piece of matter. But I think that the, the modern connotations come more from the mid-2000s, I'd say, and the early 2010s, in which time that the far-right media in mostly in the US, also in the UK, publications like Breitbart News, these, these sort of far-right spaces that, that sort of championed Donald Trump into the presidency, they would use it to sort of be a catch-all term for anyone who is, as they see it, young, often progressive, usually, or in some ways sort of too fragile in their mind to this, to that. And, and what I thought I would like to do in this book, as you referred to in the intro, is often instead of just... Um, Often we want to say, well, actually, the person who's calling young people mm. snowflakes is the snowflake. But what I want to do instead is say, well, what do we actually mean when we say that? Does that mean it's someone who believes in social justice? Is it someone who's bravely asking for their rights, their identity to be respected? All these things are actually positive things. And that's why I think it would be a very sad place in our world if we did not have the people who are called snowflakes. So is that, broadly speaking, your case for the defence, that those dismissed as snowflakes, their heart is basically in the right place, and if they do maybe get a bit carried away from time to time, we should give that a pass? I think I'm pro being carried away. I think that I go through this in this book, all these instances of what was actually you know, written about, particularly in British conservative media, as being carried away. Students are hog wild. Students are banning clapping at Oxford. Students are forcing the chancellor at uh, the University of Missouri in the US to resign. There's all of this hysteria about what young people are up to. Are they too powerful? Well, at the same time, being too sort of fragile and sensitive, but that's kind of a paradox that isn't normally addressed in these kinds of things. I see that when you look into those instances that are often create these snowflake panics, they're actually really incredible or sort of nothingy instances of protest. The banning Oxford clapping thing. Uh, I spoke to this young woman who was really pilloried, you know, tweeted at by Piers Morgan, just dragged through the media at the highest level for so-called banning clapping. Actually, what had happened, there had been, she'd been asked to uh, second a motion at a, a student council meeting at Oxford where she attended as an undergrad to um, what if we did British Sign Language clapping, which as the press called it, mm. jazz hands, instead of clapping loudly because those students with, for instance, hearing aids, sensory disabilities, whatever they have, were not attending student government because they couldn't hear what was being said right after all the raucous clapping. And, you know, I remember student government. You want to like make all this noise. 
So what she had done was sort of say, sure, I'll suggest that. It, no, no law was passed down. There was no decree. You know, nobody was imprisoned for clapping. But the British media and the tabloid press particularly is so good at finding these little things saying, ooh, here's a little Oxford student who's a spoiled, sensitive snowflake and dragging her through the press. And when you find the real story, it's often less sexy and also sort of a nice thing. Her thought was, sure, I'll do that. I've learned something new about certain kinds of disabilities. No one gets hurt if I suggest this, but it is seen as this sort of like authoritarian panic by by so many in the media. The book does make the point that to a large extent, or at least to some extent, a lot of the snowflake stories, some of the ones that you've just mentioned, are sort of the, the modern version of political correctness gone mad scare stories, which have been a tabloid staple for decades. And it's a similar kind of thing. You often, once you dig into it, find that at the bottom there is really nothing there at all, or that there is actually something that's not a terrible idea or is at least well-meaning if not thought all the way through. But if, if you take a, a certain view of it, you can turn it into this grotesque urban myth. But do you think there is something also actually new going on here, that there is the modern media ecosystem has created an entire new dynamic? It strikes me, for example, that a lot of the things that you talk about, things that go on at universities in previous times barely anybody outside the university would know or care about it. And there's no reason why they should. And I think you're quite right about what university should be. I mean, if people want to take a few years out of their late teens and early 20s to, you know, think weird stuff and do weird things, well, fine. But is that what now happens, that we're all so plugged into each other that we just keep finding new and exciting ways to make each other angry? Oh, absolutely. I think that on the one hand, yes, social media particularly means that it is so much easier to find and target young people for your generate your clicks or whatever. It means that people who might not have previously had a voice can directly critique whatever public figure on Twitter, for example, that they disagree with. And then that public figure will often see that as a horrifying experience and sort of forgetting the imbalance of power of a teenager yelling at you on Twitter versus like a politician or whoever thinks they have been quote unquote, canceled. But on the other hand, I think that you're right, it's not a new phenomenon. But I think it's also that university students have have generated these kinds of panics for for decades. Um, in, as part of this book, I went into the um, free speech movement in the, of the 60s at UC Berkeley, where I was an undergrad. And I spoke to a, a professor of mine at Berkeley decades later who had been there since the 60s described what an exciting time that was, that he never had students as engaged as he had while he was there. He could be talking about the most boring aspect of like Ottoman Empire history, and they would be like, how can we apply this to our revolution? And so he really, as a teacher, loved that. And often you get even, I don't know, there, there's fear of like radicalized students always. But also this was not unnoticed by national politics and state politics at the time. Ronald Reagan was running to be senator on a promise to clean up the mess at Berkeley, as he put it. And there was this incredibly violent clashes with anti-Vietnam War protesters and so on. So it's not that there wasn't this notice of, of and suspicion of students. And I'm sure every generation can find that, whether or not it's connected to university. Even World War I soldiers returning shell-shocked as they knew it at the time were considered fragile by their elders. And so I think that you see that repeated, that pattern throughout history, political correctness in the 90s, as you say, but right now is it is um, it feels more extreme and it feels quicker and on a vaster scale that conversations are happening in bad faith with each other on social media.
You are with the curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. Time now for the Foreign Desk Explainer, and this time Andrew Muller tells us why truck drivers have been protesting in Ottawa, Canada. In more senses than the merely geographical, Canada enjoys looking down on the United States. It is a psychological trade often made by nations damned to live alongside mighty neighbours. That rowdy mob on the other side of the border may make more noise and get more attention, but we are better, nobler and nicer. The country that comforts itself thus is not always wrong, and Canada is, by and large, altogether pleasant, but it's not always right, either. In recent days, Canada has discovered that it is not entirely immune from the Yahoo politics that Canada loftily disdains whenever it manifests in the United States. Canada's sleepy capital, Ottawa, has been besieged by a convoy of honking, throbbing, growling trucks whose honking, throbbing, growling drivers are enraged by COVID-19 vaccine mandates which would require Canadian truck drivers returning from the US, as Canadian truck drivers very often do, to quarantine upon every return home if they have chosen to remain unjabbed. It is fair to say, however, that among the truckers are those motivated by what might be charitably described as broader concerns. The Confederate flag has been hoisted by some who appear confused about which country they're in, and about quite a lot else besides, and others have raised the swastika, though it remains an open question whether they're for or against what it represents. I need to know what a white supremacist looks like. Are you, are you a white Audaciously spelled and punctuated placards declare the familiar findings of those who have done their own research that we are being surreptitiously implanted with 5G tracking devices by our Illuminati overlords who are themselves merely the traitorous cat's paws of the shape-shifting alien lizards from a parallel dimension who secretly manipulate human destiny and so interminably and absurdly forth. Uh, breaker one nine, this here's a rubber duck. You got a copy on me, big fan, come on. The protest is called the Freedom Convoy by its participants. It is being called other things by the people of Ottawa, many of those things bracing contradictions of Canada's reputation as a bastion of painstaking politeness. The capital's citizens have reported manifold instances of harassment, abuse, assault, vandalism and general antisocial behaviour by the protesters, including clowning around on the National War Memorial. We witnessed the desecration of cherished monuments, displays of hate symbols, and all types of bad behavior that have taken away the freedom of our residents to live without fear. People who had the opportunity to voice their frustration against government policy, but as the old saying goes, uh, they've worn out their welcome. The disorder was sufficient that Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, who has recently tested positive for COVID-19 himself, was relocated from his usual residence for security reasons. 
Comparisons have been made to the mob of cosplaying hooligans who invaded the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. in January last year. And though the truck drivers have not, as of this broadcast, perpetrated any large-scale organised violence, the energy is a similar mix of self-pity and self-indulgence. We're looking for freedom. We're looking for freedom. That's the only thing. I cannot tolerate to see any longer because we're, we're, not, we're not living like we should be. It is wrong to have masks because children can breathe God-given fresh air. It is important to note, however, that the Freedom Convoyers are a tiny minority, not only among Canadians, but among Canadian cross-border truck drivers. Of the 120,000 who come and go between Canada and the US regularly, roughly 90% are fully vaccinated, an actually somewhat higher figure than among the Canadian population generally. Doubtless for this reason, Justin Trudeau has felt empowered to take a firm stand, declaring that he would not meet with the truckers and dismissing their conspirazoid superstitions in refreshingly bracing terms. Yes, the concerns are not new, not surprising, but are a continuation of what we've unfortunately seen in disinformation and misinformation online, conspiracy theorists about microchips, about you know, God knows what else that go with the tinfoil hats. Nevertheless, there are those who have perceived mileage in embracing the freedom convoyers. Some on the other side of the border are very much the usual suspects, those American politicians for whom any protest in any cause by any means raised against a liberal politician is to be applauded. That's true. The Canadian truckers, you've been reading about it, who are resisting bravely these lawless mandates are doing more to defend American freedom than our own leaders by far. And we want those great Canadian truckers to know that we are with them all the way. They are. They've really shown something. But intriguingly, and or depressingly, a few Canadian politicians have thought it worth giving this particular nest of wasps a couple of encouraging pokes. The deputy leader of Canada's opposition Conservative Party, Candace Bergen, no relation, etc., has praised the protesters as passionate, patriotic and peaceful. The leader of the opposition, Erin O'Toole, has sought to leverage the protests as a means of presuming to speak for all Canadians who believe that continued COVID-19 strictures are overreaching. O'Toole has met with the Freedom Convoyers, though this was widely interpreted as a nothing-to-lose move by someone whose hold on his job had reached the fingernails in doorframe stage. As of this broadcast, the truckers are still besetting Ottawa and blockading the US-Canada border crossing near Coutts in Alberta, causing considerable disruption, including too many other truck drivers. And Trudeau is maintaining his hard line. It is an experiment in staring down populist dissent that will be keenly watched worldwide by those hoping Trudeau succeeds and those hoping he doesn't. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. That's 10-4, Big Ben. What's your 20? Omaha. Well, they ought to know what to do with them honks out there for sure. Well, mercy sakes, good buddy. We're going to back on out here, so keep the bugs off your glass and the bears off your tails. We'll catch you on the flip-flop. This here's a rubber duck on the side. We gone. Bye-bye. 
were heading to Paris to visit one of the city's oldest chocolatiers. At the Beauve Egale, chocolat is an artisanal craft and family tradition that goes back more than 200 years. Now the chocolate makers, once loved by Marie Antoinette, are working to evolve with the times, while staying true to what makes them unique. Confect's contributor Colette Davidson visited the Beauve Egale at their historical shop in Saint-Germain-de-Pré and has this report for us. It's a sleepy Monday morning in Paris. Tourists and Parisians alike are beginning to wake up and get their coffee at Les Deux Magots, the cafe much loved by Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre. And it's never too early for a bit of chocolate. De Beauvais-Galais, one of Paris's oldest chocolate makers, is just around the corner from here. I came in the store very, very, very long time ago, and I had that memory of that specific chocolate shop in that street. And today I happened to pass the neighborhood in the same street. And I figured out I have to get in and get me something, a little something sweet. The shop that houses De Beauvais-Galais chocolate dates back to 1818. A half-moon-shaped countertop in its original wood shows off piles of cocoa-dusted truffles and chocolate ganache squares, daring customers to resist temptation. A series of white columns line the inner walls, and at the top of each is a curling bronze snake, a classic symbol used by French pharmacies. That's because de Beauvais-Galais has its origins in health and wellness, and a man named Sulpice de Beauvais. Sulpice de Beauvais was the son of a physicist. And it was due to be physicist, but he, he disliked such job. He was born in the Enlightenment period and studied a lot, and he became a chemist and pharmacist. That's Bernard Poussin, the general director of de Beauvais-Galais and an eighth-generation member of the family business. He works in the upstairs office with his associate, Diane Junique, Family relics line the walls, including original paintings of Sulpice de Beauve. In this period, many people were looking at cocoa because cocoa comes from America. Uh, cocoa has a lot of uh, qualities, and, and so he studied. And he was the first in France to devise the first solid chocolate, chocolate to crunch. Before, the chocolate was something quite soft and was used to make drinks. But it was soft, okay? So he succeeded to separate what we call the cocoa mass and the cocoa butter and to mix them again uh, very um, intimately. And the result was uh, the chocolate is hard. This solid chocolate was of special interest to Marie Antoinette, Queen of France, in the year 1779, who suffered from headaches. One day he, he, he showed to the Queen... Uh, the result of uh, his research that it was says uh, the crunchy chocolate, the chocolate to crunch. Marie Antoinette was a, a young lady uh, accustomed to take a lot of medicine. She, she took that. And so Sulpice proposed them to, to mix that with cocoa. Cocoa has a strong test. And in fact, it covers easily uh, all the medicine. Marie Antoinette was accustomed to drink hot chocolates. But as we imagine, when you put medicine in hot chocolate, the, the, the test is worst. But in, in, the, in cold chocolate, in, uh, in dark, in uh, uh, hard chocolate, you, you do not feel such taste. So he transformed in powder many, many products the queens were accustomed to, to take and mix with chocolate. 
The first time Sulpice de Beauvais made the mixture, he put it into the shape of a pistole, or Spanish gold coin. The name stuck, and now de Beauvais-Gallet sell their Marie Antoinette pistoles with great success, minus the headache medicine. Since the era of Marie Antoinette, de Beauvais-Gallet chocolate has continued to be enjoyed by the French elite and nobility. Its fleur-de-lis caramel ganache was a favorite of Charles X, the last king of France. And novelist Marcel Proust was such a fan that de Beauvais-Gallet created a chocolate shaped like a madeleine in honor of his classic work In Search of Lost Time. Now, however, generations of ordinary people from around the world make up a large part of their customer base. We have many tourists. In fact, they, they are regular customers from generations. And sometimes they show us, they come with old cases. They say, oh, you, you know, I found old cases of a company 50 or 100 years ago. Do you have any, any paraphernalia from your family's history? It's a chocolate case, so it is laser, it is paper, laser, and painting under glass. It was made for the king. It is 1824-1825. It was for a wedding when the king offered chocolate. And of course, it is not writing the Beauvais of course, because uh, uh, at, at this time, when you were a provider, so you would not put your brand, you, you only... Right, and it has a gold rim, and what, who is this on the cover? Uh, it's, a, it's a wedding, so it's supposed to be the, the lady who will marry, I don't know, either. Of course, it's a, it's a noble lady, but Beautiful. we do not have the, the name. It's beautiful. <laughs> oh, and I see you have, it looks like you have some old cases, some chocolate yes, cases. Yes, or old paper cases. You do, for instance, just to love that it was a, a chocolate to put in water. Huh? In fact, the device uh, is uh, dated 1830, 1832. It's the first chocolate to put in, put in water or in milk. And instant chocolate. The history that makes de Beauvais-Gallet so unique is something the company has fought hard to preserve, but they're committed to finding the highest quality sources of cocoa in the world and keeping other ingredients local when they can. It's part of what sets them apart, says Bernard Poussin. The ingredient, the cocoa, is from uh, cocoa cradles, that is to say, uh, the central of uh, Latin America. Huh? Uh, and after for the other product, but we use most of the time product of France, but we try to find the best, for instance, for the chestnuts that come from the region of Turin, because they are supposed to be the best, and the almond from Sicilia, because they are supposed to be the best. Okay, and sugar is always canned sugar, but after for the other product, because they come from France, the, the milk, the cream, uh, come from France. De Beauvais-Gallet have allowed their products to follow the times and evolve naturally. It's not that they want to stay stuck in the past, but there's a sense of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We also to our tradition because to move has no interest. All the others have moved. So we stay as we are. We, we keep a temple of traditional French chocolates. Some people still love. And love it they do. But while buying chocolate for those we love may be popular in other parts of the world, it's not what keeps customers coming back every year to buy chocolate at De Beauvais-Gallet, says Bernard Poussin more connoisseurs than people who buy to offer. Except still some old ladies uh, for their grandchildren. <laughs> people who prefer something else. Well, my, my dad always oui. offered me chocolate <laughs> okay. for Valentine's Day. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. It's the last generation. Yeah. <laughs> it's the last generation. For Confect in Paris, I'm Colette Davidson.
And to end the show, Francis Bacon is one of Britain's most celebrated artists. A new exhibition at the Royal Academy in London focuses on his fascination with the animal world and the profound effect it had on his renowned depictions of the human form. Monaco's Sophie Monaghan Coombs went along to the exhibition to find out more. Born to an English family in Dublin at the beginning of the 20th century, Francis Bacon made his mark creating often quite disturbing images of the human figure in his unique style. The Royal Academy's exhibition, Francis Bacon, Man and Beast, shows a new perspective on the artist, zoning in on Bacon's relationship with animals and how he was influenced by the creatures of the farmyard and of the wild. I met with the Royal Academy's secretary and chief executive, Axel Ruger, to take a look around the gallery. Let's start off in front of one of the paintings that exemplifies some of the themes of the exhibition. Well, we're now looking at a work from uh, that Bacon painted in 1950, and it's called Fragment of a Crucifixion. And the interesting thing is, Bacon was not one bit religious, and so the crucifixion didn't really, for him, have the meaning of what we associate as a, being a religious image, but it was just also for him another manifestation of the cruelty and the brutality with which we as humans act and what we are capable of. So that is one aspect of, of this work and we're showing here something um, where you see a figure in the center which may be someone you know seen as you know sort of crucified but it is actually taken from an illustration of an owl that is flying towards us but then the head of the of the owl is actually reduced once again to a just open mouth where the teeth are visible Uh, that is clearly screaming. So in that sense, that's a sort of iconic image. And then, you know, there's also leaning over the ledge at the top, sort of trying to get to the owl that is flying towards us. And then surrounded in the background, you see then a dominant, this sort of crucifix form, but in the background behind it, scenes with, you know, cars and people just walking by, not aware of the drama of the scene and even a strip of the sea. Just and also then that all of that augmented by the very rich texture with which the paint is applied. You know, the painting also has sort of a haptic quality in that sense. You want, almost want to touch it which of course in a museum you shouldn't, but that is, that sort of, again, underlines that sort of, you know, really visceral and very immediate character that this depiction has. That Bacon was brought up with a racehorse breeder father clearly played a role in his fascination with animals. Yet his severe asthma that affected him throughout his life meant that at the same time as he was drawn to animals, he had to keep a distance. Later on in life, he started collecting wildlife photography, And the exhibition includes copies of the snippets from Bacon's studio, which inspired some of the works. The movement of the animals, which he translates so vividly onto the canvas, is particularly captivating. This sense of movement, often seemingly in anguish, and the unsettling, twisted figures shriek from the canvases in every room. Walking through the rooms is anything but a relaxing experience. I mean, I think the sort of impression one gets when one walks through the exhibition is one of sort of very pronounced, a very pronounced sort of visceral uh, experience. This is not about, you know, sort of intellectually understanding what he wanted to say, what he meant. And so, but really he wants to sort of grab you, you know, by almost by the throat and, you know, really have you react emotionally and on a very visceral level to what he shows with these sort of, you know, animalistic 
creatures, the hybrid between, you know, human figures and animals and also these very sort of contorted figures and sort of contorted facial features. Sometimes you cannot really tell whether it's meant to be human or an animal. All of that, you know, is really speaking to us on a very, very sort of direct, emotional and visceral level. So I think that is what one really, you know, sort of gets confronted with really in this exhibition. On the walls are monkeys, bulls, dogs and birds. Organised roughly chronologically, what runs throughout is Bacon's apparent quest to depict something essential about the human condition. There are no straightforward portraits or scenes. Instead, he brings together qualities of humans and animals into strange hybrid paintings, blurring the boundaries between man and beast, or perhaps just bringing to the fore that there is really less to delineate us than we might think. Of course, there is, you know, a lot of underlying drama, partly also because he was so, also throughout his life, had been confronted also with, uh, you know, a lot of human violence already in his own sort of domestic environment. But then he has lived through two world wars and experienced also the sort of aftermath of that and saw to what degree humans are capable of you know, violence and what they can do to each other. And I think all of that left a very, very deep impression on him. And that is also, you know, reflected in the exhibition and then, you know, what we, we can be driven to and also how that is then expressed. So the, the scream that you see, uh, you know, the, the cry that you see in so many of the figures has to do with something really primordial in us because that scream is one of these sort of, you know, primordial noises and can denote either, you know, enormous ecstasy, but also, you know, enormous pain and suffering. So, you know, that is, uh, I guess, between these poles also that this keeps going back and forth. For Monocle in London, I'm Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Thank you very much, Sophie. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Jack Dewars and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programs here on Monaco 24. Thanks for listening. <laughs>